An apple a day keeps the doctor away. Perhaps the most famous example of a catchphrase or a slogan, at least in the English language, these slogans designed to communicate some truth in a short, catchy, memorable way. And these catchphrases have a way of getting burned into our collective conscience. I think another famous one, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. Even if you haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life, chances are you've heard that before. And actually, I think that catchphrase has greatly perpetuated the belief that angels have wings, when in fact, the Bible, there's no example of an angel ever having wings. Anyway, slogans are nothing new. 500 years ago, there was another catchphrase that was running around being used as a marketing tool. And for those of you who've been with us on Sunday nights, I bet this one has already been imprinted into your memory. It went like this. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. And that was a slogan devised by Johann Tetzel, a Catholic friar in the 1500s. And Tetzel was responsible for collecting indulgences in Germany. And he used this catchphrase to great effect, leading people to believe that if they paid into the church coffers, they could reduce the amount of time that they had to spend or their loved one, deceased loved one, had to spend in purgatory. And this corrupt practice, especially by Tetzel, became a giant precursor to the Protestant Reformation, which is what we are learning about in this month of October. And so let me back it up a bit and give you a little bit more background as we're studying these Reformation truths throughout October. I feel they need to start you off with a bit of historical context. And so it was back in the early 1500s, the Catholic Church began building rather a new basilica in Rome. The Pope wanted it to be the greatest church ever, to house the bones of Peter and Paul. It was, it was to be known as St. Peter's Basilica. But Pope Leo X, the Medici Pope, who was extremely corrupt, he burned through the treasury of the church, so they were broke and construction stopped. However, a new fundraising opportunity presented itself through Prince Albert. Prince Albert of Brandenburg rose to his status by purchasing his positions. Even though he was too young to be a bishop, he purchased the position of bishop from the Pope. He wanted to be the the most powerful cleric in all of Germany. And so later when the archbishop position became open, he bought that too for a hefty sum from Pope Leo X. And to pay for this, Albert borrowed heavily from German bankers. And in this arrangement, Leo also gave Albert permission to be in charge of the distribution of indulgences throughout Germany. Of all the money Albert raised by selling indulgences, Rome would take a 50% cut for the building of the basilica, and Albert could keep the other 50% to pay back all of his debt. And so began the widespread distribution of indulgences in Germany. Catholics will say, past and present, that you know indulgences were never truly sold. That's called talking out of both sides of your mouth. That's like saying, I I didn't really buy a car from the dealership. I went and I I graciously donated $20,000 to a dealership, and they graciously donated me a car. Say what you want, you, you bought a car. Now, what are indulgences? Indulgences are a way to reduce the amount of punishment for sin. According to Catholic teaching, when you sin, you incur a penalty before God. There is eternal penalty and temporal penalty. 
through the sacrament of baptism, you can be forgiven of all the eternal punishment of your sins. Of course, if you, if you sin again, if you commit a moral sin, you're still in danger of hell. But those sins can be cleansed through the sacrament of penance. However, sin still comes with this temporal punishment. Even after being forgiven of the eternal guilt of sin, they say, the soul is still stained by sin's effects. And this stain must be removed or purged. And that's done either in this life or in purgatory, the place of purging. So let's talk about purgatory for a minute. I'm sure you've heard about purgatory before, even if you don't come from a Catholic background. It refers to this intermediate state after death. It's a place of purification or purging for those who are destined for heaven, but they're not quite righteous enough to enter heaven. Most people die still lacking the merit and the righteousness to enter heaven. So they go to purgatory and they suffer not the punitive wrath of God, but the corrective wrath of God. They go to purgatory where they're purified. And keep in mind, though, this can take millions of years, however long it takes for you to become inherently righteous. So unless you're some super saint, you can look forward to spending a long time in purgatory after you die. But what this also means, though, is, is that chances are your deceased loved ones, where are they now? They're still in purgatory. They've got tens of thousands of years to go. They're, they're still there. But that also means you can help them. You can help them. According to Catholic teaching, there are things you can do to shorten not only your time in purgatory, but also the time of, of your deceased loved ones. What kind of things? Well, you can pray for the dead. Take Eucharist on behalf of the dead. Give alms, show charity, do penance. All these things to help speed up your time in purgatory and their time as well. These works merit a reward from God and this reward comes in the form of less time spent in purgatory. Now this is where indulgences come back in. The concept of indulgences emerged in the Middle Ages along with this, this thing called the treasury of merit. You know, when Jesus died, he gained way more merit than necessary to redeem all mankind. There's more than enough his death was worth when it comes to merit. And so the excess merit he earned is pictured as being stored in heaven in this treasury, treasury of merit. It's full. It also contains the merit of Mary. The virgin mother, they say, and her merit is, is unfathomable, unfathomable. You also have all the merit of all the great saints being dumped into this treasury of merit. So this is just bound, bountiful treasury of, of merit. And it can be given out to free people from their sin and to restore their communion with God. However, only the Pope holds the keys to this treasury of merit. Only he can open it and give some out, so to speak, for the remission of sins. And that's exactly what indulgences represent. An indulgence is a grant by the Pope of the remission of the temporary, temporal effects of sin in purgatory based on this treasury of merit. In other words, based on all this excess merit, the Pope can give you some through an indulgence, and you or your loved one will thereby spend less time paying for the, their sins in purgatory. 
Indulgences, though, must be gained. Not, not just free, not just giving them out. You've got to do something. You have to fulfill certain conditions or perform certain works to gain an indulgence, like saying prayers, doing good works, giving alms, going on a pilgrimage. The Crusades, for example, were largely driven by indulgences. The Pope gave plenary indulgences for all who went off and fought in the Crusades. In time, though, the Catholic Church learned how effective indulgences were at raising money. How do you gain an indulgence? Well, by doing good works. But one good work is almsgiving, right? Okay, so if the church has a building project and you contribute to it, that's a good work. And so this is how indulgences became associated with fundraising. The Catholic Church used this method to fund many big projects. One famous example is the Butter Tower in the ruined cathedral. It earned its name because the money that earned to build this tower was raised by the sale of indulgences that allowed people to use butter during Lent. They basically bought indulgences to give them a free pass, where otherwise you couldn't have butter during Lent in that time. Now, as a quick side note, although the Catholic Church has toned down the the sale of indulgences today, all this stuff is all still official teaching of the Catholic Church, from purgatory to the treasure of merit to indulgences. These are all part of Catholic dogma, declared to be true by popes and church councils, and it can't be undone. And you'll still find today in the Catholic Catechism teaching on how to gain an indulgence. In fact, back in 2013, Pope Francis offered plenary indulgences via Twitter. This is a true story. Brazil was hosting the World Youth Day, which is a big Catholic event in Brazil. And the Pope said all who attended would gain a plenary indulgence. That's a big deal. That's referring to the remission of all of your sin's punishment in purgatory up to that point, until you sin again, of course, but up to that point, total remission. But he said for those who couldn't attend in person, the Pope granted the same plenary indulgence if you followed along via Twitter. So I guess it's probably time to start following the Pope on Twitter. You know, never know what he's going to give out next. That's true, though. Anyway, now let me take you back again to Johann Tetzel. And I trust by now his slogan is making more sense. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. This was ancient marketing at its best, and it worked. Prince Albert, he employed Tetzel in Germany to raise as much money as possible through the selling of these indulgences. But this unbiblical and corrupt practice of selling indulgences, especially in such a crass way, outraged a young Martin Luther, who at the time was himself a Catholic monk. But he could remain silent no longer. So he penned a list of 95 theses or disputations concerning the sale of indulgences. That's what they were about, the 95 theses. And then he famously nailed them to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And within these 95 theses, Luther leveled some cutting criticisms. He contended that the Pope had no power to remit anyone's sins. He claimed that the true treasure of the church was the gospel. 
the gospel of the glory and grace of God. And this treasure of the gospel, it's like a net which is used to catch the men of riches, but indulgences are like a net which are used to catch the riches of men. Luther also argued against this corrupt practice of selling indulgences. It made it hard to defend the Pope. Remember, at the time, he's still within the Catholic Church. And it's hard to defend the Pope. He he questioned, why doesn't the Pope empty purgatory just for the sake of love and not money? He has the power to empty purgatory. Why not just do it for free? Also, Luther questioned, why doesn't the Pope, whose riches exceed all men, why doesn't he build St. Peter's Basilica with his own money and not the money of poor believers? And he was the richest man around at the time, the Pope. Instead, in Theses Thesis 94, Luther concluded, quote, Christians should be exhorted to strive to follow Christ, their head, through pains, deaths, and hells, end quote. Not the Pope as their head, Christ as their head. This is really what it boiled down to. The doctrine of indulgences, especially the sale of indulgences, truly diminished the sufficiency of Christ and his work. Well, Luther, back in 1517, when this all started, he started off just by taking issue with indulgences. But as time went on and he studied more and more of the Bible, finding out what the Bible actually says, he challenged more Catholic beliefs and practices, finding them just unbiblical from the treasury of merit to purgatory, neither mentioned anywhere in the Bible. Luther later said that purgatory was invented by the Pope just basically another way for the church to raise money. He wrote, quote, Purgatory is the greatest falsehood because it is based on ungodliness and unbelief. For they deny that faith saves. And they maintain that satisfaction for sins is the cause of salvation. Such people die in a faith in works and have no knowledge of Christ. We die in faith in Christ who died for our sins and rendered satisfaction for us, end quote. This is really what it comes down to. Here, here's a fundamental question. How are our sins paid for? For people to be made right with God, I trust you understand your, your sin debt before God has to be paid back, has to be dealt with. But How? Well, the Catholic Church teaches through, through indulgences, through the treasure of merit, through purgatory, through penance, in effect, that Christ's death on the cross wasn't enough. Essential to Christianity is the fact that Jesus died on the cross to pay for sins. But within Catholicism, that death didn't do enough. It, it wasn't enough. More must be done. I mean, sure, Jesus can make initial satisfaction for your sins, but you've got to do the rest. You have to make satisfaction your own, or yourself, rather, for the rest of your sins through deeds. This, Luther and the Reformers found, is a different gospel. This is not biblical Christianity. This is not what the Bible teaches. And to the contrary, Luther rediscovered the true gospel, which says that complete atonement and forgiveness and salvation is found in Christ alone, based on his work alone. 
And this, in turn, brings us to the fourth sola of the Reformation, which we come to study today. Like Oliver mentioned, solus Christus, Christ alone. Christ alone. And here we are, literally almost 500 years to the day, in just, uh, just 10 days or so, of these events. And we don't want to forget our heritage, which is, after all, simply a biblical heritage, marking a time of just going back to the Bible alone as our source of truth, basing everything we say and do, believe and practice on Scripture, and Scripture alone. And according to God's word, the good news of the gospel is that you can be justified or completely made right with God by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's a catchphrase worth remembering. That's a slogan you want to commit to memory. That has much more power. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this could be called the slogan of the Reformation, something we've been giving our attention to throughout the month of October. And so far we've covered these different rallying cries of the Reformation, like sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone. And today is number four, solus Christus, Christ alone. And it's true, Catholics believe that grace and faith and Christ are necessary for salvation, but not sufficient. So it's not grace alone or faith alone or Christ alone. They've added a system of works, deeds, and merits because the work of Christ is not enough. It's not truly sufficient to save. But that is a great falsehood, which effectively erases the, the whole foundation of the gospel. And scripture, to the contrary, teaches that Jesus is our sufficient Savior. That his work is the only work that matters, and it's enough to pay for all of our sins. And it's this truth that I want to display to you now from Scripture. So with this extended introduction in mind, let's transition now, and let me show you two essential truths behind Solus Christus, Christ alone so that you would trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Two essential truths behind Christ alone, that you would trust in Christ alone for your salvation. And the first, number one, Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice for sins. Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice for sins. Start by talking a little bit about the Old Testament sacrificial system. The Old Testament is known for this intricate, massive system of animal sacrifices. And the point of these sacrifices was to make atonement for sins. God provided Israel with this means of covering their sins. All of us have sinned before God. That sin separates us from God and merits only his just wrath. Unless we do something about this sin debt, we're, we're going to be judged and separated from God eternally. However, there's nothing we can do about this sin debt on our own. But thankfully, God, in his mercy, he's made a provision of atonement for us, which in the Old Testament took the form of these animal 
sacrifices. These animal sacrifices, though, were incomplete, imperfect, and insufficient. They could not truly take away the sins of the people. This is evidenced by the fact that they're never-ending. They had to be offered over and over and over again. Even the priests had to first atone for their own sins and then the sins of the people. God still accepted these sacrifices, though, as a provisional covering of sin, accepting people by faith, but this was contingent on a perfect future sacrifice, one which would truly remove the sins of the people. Well, now enter Christ, the Messiah, the Lamb of God who, what, takes away the sins of the world, said John the Baptist. This is the primary purpose of Christ's coming. He didn't come just to teach or even work wonders. Although all of his works were essential, his primary purpose was to die. He was born so that he could die as a substitute sacrifice for sinners like us, to reconcile sinners to himself. Last week I took you on a little running survey of the book of Romans to display to you grace alone. Now we're going to do that with the book of Hebrews. Take your Bibles now and and open them. Find your way, take a pew Bible, to Hebrews chapter 7. Make your way to Hebrews chapter 7. The book of Hebrews is all about the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, that he's all that we need. Right from the beginning, the author relates how after Jesus made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This, his great work of atonement, it's finished, and so he sits, mission accomplished, being far greater than saints and angels. Chapter 2 goes on to relate how and part of that mission for Christ was to partake of a human nature, yet without sin, and to taste death for us where he might gain victory over sin and Satan and even death itself. And through his death, chapter 2, verse 17 says, Jesus became a, a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation speaks of satisfaction. Jesus made satisfaction for all of our sins. He perfectly turned away, turned aside the Father's wrath due all our sins. And fundamental to his work on the cross was his role as priest, as the great high priest. And one of the main points of Hebrews is Jesus is the only priest we need. Hebrews 7, look at verses 26 and 27. It says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. First, Jesus doesn't need to atone for his own sins, being sinless. The second, Jesus doesn't need to atone for our sins over and over again, being perfect. He's the perfect sacrifice for sins. 
And it's so clear, once for all, right? You see that, verse 27? You know, part of the new covenant, which Jesus was inaugurating through his death on the cross, came with the the complete forgiveness of sins, where God would remember his people's sins no more. That's what the writer of Hebrews talks about in chapter 8. For example, verse 12, where God says in the new covenant, I will remember or rather, I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When sins are completely paid for by Christ's atoning death, all of their guilt and debt and penalty is forgiven. There's no more remembrance by God. Not in this life, not in purgatory, not ever. I mean, think about purgatory, this holding cell where you can't enter heaven. Why not? Because God, he still remembers your sins. He's making you pay in some way for your sins. There's a reason purgatory is is not found anywhere in the Bible because, to the contrary, through Christ's complete atonement, his sacrifice, there's no more remembrance of sins once for all in him. Now let's get into Hebrews chapter 9. You can flip over there. This is where the author contrasts the old and the new. The pinnacle of the old covenant sacrificial system was what? The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. This was an annual event where the priest first made atonement for his own sins and then for the sins of the entire nation. And he did so by bringing the the sacrificial blood of the animal into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the Holy of Holies. This room was the closest Israel had to the presence of God, the little inner chamber of the temple. However, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. But even this great sacrifice was imperfect. had to be done yearly. It could never truly make perfect those who draw near. But with Christ came a new day of atonement, a day never to be repeated. As Jesus offered himself up on the cross unto death, so Hebrews 9 then pictures Jesus, who's also the great high priest, he entered the greater holy of holies, the heavenly tabernacle, And he presented his own blood before the Father to make a complete atonement for the sins of the people, thereby purchasing for them eternal redemption. Look at Hebrews 9, verse 11 and 12. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is to say not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption so the picture christ the great high priest mediator of a new covenant he's the sacrifice on the cross the lamb of god and then he he takes and presents his own blood before god To do what? To put away our sins. To show the Father that complete payment 
for these sins had been made. Look at verse 24. It says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters a holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sins for the sacrifice of himself. Over and over again, it's so clear. Jesus put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. He made purification for sins by offering himself once for all. He made propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 28, he was offered once to bear the sins of many. How many times does the writer of Hebrews have to say the same thing over and over again until you get it? Christ's atonement was complete. That's it. That there's nothing more that needs to be done, nothing more that can be done to make atonement for all of our sins. And being sufficient, his work is in no way to be repeated. That's the whole point. It's in no way to be repeated. Do you understand this? Do you believe this? But then do you realize this is the opposite of Catholic dogma? Through their teaching on penance and purgatory and indulgences. Yeah, Jesus can cleanse your sins at baptism. But there are still some effects of sin, artificially called the temporal consequences, that you have to pay for yourself. You have to through deeds of merit and penance or in purgatory. You've got to cleanse the stain on your soul. God does remember your sins. And until you cleanse yourself, you can't enter heaven. But these false teachings come from a low and unbiblical view of Christ and his sacrifice. And sadly, the worst offense has to come from the Catholic practice of Eucharist or communion. They believe that as the priest prays, the bread and the wine literally transforms into the very body and blood of Jesus, which the priest then re-sacrifices at the altar to make atonement for sins. This is a continual weekly atonement as they re-sacrifice Christ over and over again to make atonement for the people every single week. And listen, you have to listen to this quote from John O'Brien, the Roman Catholic priest, on the Eucharist. It's kind of lengthy, but just listen. Quote, he says, When the priest pronounces the tremendous words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens, brings Christ down from his throne, and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. Then he says, While the Blessed Virgin was the human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altar as the eternal victim for the sins of man. Not once, but a thousand times. The priest speaks and lo, Christ The eternal and omnipotent God bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. End quote. 
if you follow it, if you get what he's saying, he's effectively saying that the Catholic priest is a greater priest than Christ. Why? Well, Jesus, he just offered himself once for the sins of man. But the priest, well, they offer Christ thousands of times for the sins of man. And Christ himself bows in submission to the priest as they pull him down from heaven. This is blasphemy. And it just so happens to be the exact opposite of what Scripture says. I mean, what have we already just read? We've already seen enough, but let's not stop there. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 10, he says, By this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. See, look, we do need the body of Jesus offered for us. It's just that it was done once for all. Verse 11 Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Verse 17. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more, the Lord says. We're saved through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all, not every week. That's the old covenant over and over again. Christ, once for all. He offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. By one offering, he perfected us for all time. Now, because of that, our sins are remembered no more. I don't see how it could be clearer than that. Is it clear to you? In verse 18, Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. The whole point of daily sacrifices is because you're, you're not completely forgiven. That's why you need more sacrifices. You're not totally forgiven. And Catholics, by reproducing the, the Old Testament system in effect, they're admitting that you, you don't really have complete forgiveness in Christ. You need more sacrifices. And hence, they, they completely miss the boat on the new covenant work of Christ. In fact, they've quite literally carried over the sacrificial system and their whole priesthood from the Old Covenant, from the Old Testament. And this is why that they still live completely ridden with guilt and fear, they, they don't really have the good news that by being justified by faith, we have peace with God now through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1. They sadly don't get that. But for you, though, don't ever substitute or cheapen the good news. Remember that on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. He didn't say, it is begun. He said, it is finished. He wasn't starting something. He was finishing something with his death on the cross, namely complete atonement. Payment on behalf of our sins had been made in full. That's why he said, it is finished. The debt that we owed had been paid in full. And that's why in the moment of his death, the veil in the temple separating the holy of holies from everybody was torn in two from top to bottom 
indicating that what just happened on the cross, through that, the way to God is now open for all. The way is open through the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. What more needs to be done? What more can be done? Martin Luther said, Oliver actually, I think, quoted this this morning, quote, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me, end quote. The glory of the gospel, it's not about what we must do. It's about what Jesus did for us, that which we could not do for ourselves. That's the good news. And that's enough. This is why the reformers had to break from the Catholic Church 500 years ago. And this is why we we have to stand in the same stream today. That's because our hope is found in Christ alone. He's the sufficient sacrifice for sinners. Well, briefly now, I want to give you a, a second truth behind Solus Christus. Just one more briefly. Number two. Jesus is the sufficient mediator for sinners. He's a sufficient sacrifice for sinners. He's also the sufficient mediator for sinners. Now, I said before that the Catholic Church has completely missed the point of the new covenant. And that's doubly true for their whole system of of the priesthood. It's just a carryover from the Old Testament, from the Old Covenant. This, though, is another way they diminish the work of Christ. Not only is Christ's death insufficient as a sacrifice, but Christ's priesthood is insufficient as our mediator. You need another priest. You need a human priest. In the Roman Catholic system, salvation is akin to the sacraments. There's no salvation apart from the seven Sacraments. However, the the sacraments are locked behind the priesthood. Only the priests can administer the sacraments. So in effect, there's no salvation apart from the priesthood. You have no hope of being right with God apart from the priest. And the priesthood, they, they really control your life from birth to death. From birth with baptism to death with extreme unction, that's anointing the dead or the sick before death, to all throughout life via penance, you need the priest if you have any hope to be right with God. But Luther and the Reformers, they came to also reject this low view of Christ and his priesthood. They also went on to reject the entire Catholic priesthood system altogether. Why? Well, because... They obscured the work of Christ. They made themselves the dispensers of God's grace. And the whole thing is just not in the Bible. The whole system is just not in the Bible. Instead, the Bible teaches Christ alone is our only priest, our only mediator, our only representative between us and God. Christ alone gives us direct access to God. Back in the Old Testament... God assigned the the priestly function to one of the tribes, the tribe of Levi, to be the priest, to be the representatives between people and God. That's true in the Old Testament. Back then, your access to God was tied to a priest. Your atonement 
was tied to a priest. But again, Christ fulfilled all that, which is what Catholics fail to understand. In making full atonement, Jesus fulfilled the role of the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, being the perfect mediator between God and man. And so just as we have no more need for a sacrifice, we have no more need for a priesthood. That's the point. Christ fulfills both. Now that's the whole point of Hebrews chapter 7. You can flip back there. Jesus came because the old sacrifices were imperfect and the old priesthood was imperfect. But he is perfect. Look at Hebrews 7. Look at verse 23. It says, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The point, you need no other representative before God. You don't need a priest. You don't need the saints. You don't need Mary. They can't hear you anyway. You just need Christ alone. The eternal one, 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This is why the priestly class is gone. This is why there's zero mention of a priestly class in the New Testament regarding that the New Covenant Church is gone. There's elders, there's pastors, there's deacons, but there's no longer a priesthood class. To be clear, the New Testament makes one mention of a priesthood for the church, except that it applies to all believers. 1 Peter 2.9 mentions the priesthood of all believers, that we are in Christ, all of us, a royal priesthood. Luther, Luther championed this concept. He said that from the plowboy to the milkmaid, all true believers are like priests before God. How? Well, in Christ, we can do priestly work. We don't make atonement for others. We don't represent others before God. But we are called to intercede for others, to serve others, to minister to others, to encourage others. But no one believed this, that you don't need any other priest or mediator before God but Christ alone. He's sufficient in his role as both offering and offerer, as sacrifice and priest. And so you... Just go to him directly with your prayer and your praise. Hebrews 4.14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 16 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. This is our privilege in Christ. We can draw near to him with confidence and him alone. Well, to wrap it up here, I want to give you one final observation from Hebrews 10. So let's finish with this. Turn to Hebrews 10. One more. I don't know if you noticed, but the book of Hebrews always presents Jesus as sitting down. 
Throughout the whole book, he's always sitting down. Hebrews 1, 3, after making purification, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 8, 1, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus enduring the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God. He's all sitting in the book of Hebrews. Why is that? Is he tired? No, he's not tired. So, so what is this teaching? Well, think back to the earthly tabernacle, which is in Hebrews a bunch. The tabernacle or the temple came with all sorts of furnishings from the showbread to the altar to the lampstand to the ark and so on. But of all the furniture in the temple, one piece is notably missing. What's missing from the temple? A chair. There's no chairs anywhere. And do you know why that is? It's because the work of the priest was never finished. They always had work to do. There's no time for sitting. You're not done. There's always atonement to be made, always sacrifices to be made, prayers and gifts to offer. Their work was never finished, and there was no sitting. You stand and you minister. But Jesus came, the great high priest, and he died on the cross, shedding his blood to make complete forgiveness for sins. And then, like we learned in Hebrews, he entered the heavenly tabernacle, the presence of God, and he presented his perfect blood to the Father, completely turning aside his wrath. And after that, after Jesus had had finished making complete atonement for our sins, what did he do? He sat down. He just sat down. Why? Well, his work was finished. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 11 and 12. It says, every priest stands daily. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Do you get it? Christ's work of atonement is finished. This is what you get when you get a perfect and eternal high priest. And as a result of his finished work, now we can approach God with confidence. Just think about this now. Now, through Jesus, who's our only priest and our only sacrifice, now we are allowed to enter in. Where? Not the earthly holy of holies. That was just a picture. But we are now granted entrance into that same heavenly tabernacle. God's very presence, heaven itself. Through Jesus, we are now invited in to heaven. There's no purgatory. There's nothing else but his presence because of that finished work. And we can enter with confidence because he lives forever to intercede for us. Catholics, sadly, denying the sufficiency of Christ's work as priest and sacrifice, they don't know this confidence. They have no assurance of salvation, no confidence before God. They instead live in fear and dread. But does that sound like this? Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence 
to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, because of what he did, now we can draw near in full assurance of faith, trusting in Christ alone for our right standing with God. By his work as sacrifice and priest, we can enter into God's presence forever. You just have to understand, though, you can only enter in, though, by faith. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. You can read that on your own. But only those who come by faith enter in. That's why we say faith alone in Christ alone. Trusting in nothing else. So do you have that faith? Have you placed your trust in Christ alone? Not in yourself, not in your works, not in some priest, not in Mary. Trust in Christ alone. Alone, He's your only hope of entering in. So go to him. Pray to him directly. Cry out to him. Call to him. He will hear and answer and forgive and save you as you cast down all other confidences. May it be true of you where you can say that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's, that's another catchphrase worth remembering. And then Hebrews 13, 15, near the very end, then it says, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice. Now, now we're priests, we're offering up a sacrifice. What? Now, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Now, because of what he has done for us, We're called to offer up just one sacrifice, and that is us, our lips, our lives, our thanksgivings, our praises to him who died for us, who brought us in to the presence of God. So do that. This is why we praise him, solus Christus. We praise Christ alone. Let's pray. For Lord God, we we do praise Christ alone, our only Savior. The one you sent to completely pay for our sins on the cross. Being the perfect man, he could be that substitute for us all. Being divine, he could be a sufficient substitute for us all, Lord. And we thank you for that work. Lord Jesus, that you did not turn aside, but in perfect obedience and submission to the Father, you, you carried out this task of of swallowing up the the whole waterfall of God's wrath that was due us, that we deserved. But Lord Jesus, as we also sing, you you paid it all. There's nothing left for us to owe. All sin, all consequences of sin is is perfectly paid for in you. And we receive that forgiveness as a gift of God's grace through our faith. And so we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. I pray all here... Remember that slogan, Lord, and commit it to memory and believe it 
that, that they really call out to Christ as their only hope and confidence in, in true faith. And for those who have, for all of us, Lord, we now offer up our praises. You have made us all priests, in a sense, priests before you, to minister, to serve you. And we have but one sacrifice, and that is our, our praise, our thanksgiving, our worship. And you are worthy, and so our souls are delighted to, to sing your praises let us do that now with hearts renewed and in, in love and joy for what our great God has done for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen.